ask you to remain standing as Brother John Piquet comes to bring the word of the Lord. Let's worship with him. Let's pray that the Lord anoints us as, as much as he anoints him. Amen. Praise Lord, everybody. Every time. Um, thank you, Pastor, Bishop, and the rest of the ministry for allowing me to come up here and do Bible study. Pastor asked me to do um, do tonight's Bible study last week. Um, and I can tell you, I know we're live streaming right now, and if he's watching, you know, we miss you. And... Uh, you know, we're praying for the family. And Boston, you know, he's stubborn. He's going to get through it. God's going to take care of Boston. But uh, nevertheless, we're here tonight, and I believe God has a word for somebody. I believe God's wanting to teach somebody more about himself, more about his word, and more than just teach at a knowledge level, but I believe he wants to be able to transform somebody's heart. That's the point of teaching, it is to transform the heart. Okay. Now, I'm treating this like a Bible study. I've got a lot of scripture. I had a lot more scripture, and my wife told me to trim it down. So it seems to be an inherited thing of mine where I got it from my pastor, where I just have pages and pages and pages of scripture, and it all makes sense to me. But the wife's like, John, that's way too much. you got to cut that down. So... <laughs> I'm looking at my notes. I had like four pages of notes, and there's a lot of it just a wall of scripture, but I'm down to two. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to kind of kick this thing off. And again, thank you, Pastor, for giving the opportunity. But the title of, I guess if you want to give this Bible study a title, it's that God's plan of salvation is to be holy, for I am holy. Okay. I'm going to read one verse of scripture, then we'll pray, and then we'll go ahead and be seated here. So Acts chapter 2. Verse 37, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Bishop, would you pray? Man, you can be seated. The verse I read into your hearing, most of us are familiar with this passage of Scripture. If we've been in church any amount of time, particularly in apostolic church, we're familiar with the Acts 2.38 message. And Peter, at this point in time, was just finishing up his sermon. And the sermon did its job, and it pricked the hearts of the people, and they asked a question. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Okay. And then we know the verse 38, Peter answers them and says unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And sometimes when somebody asks us what the plan of salvation is, we kind of stop there. Once in a while, we'll go into verse 39, right, to encourage them. Say, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. But the thing is, is Peter wasn't done answering the question with that. 
Verse 40 continues on. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Holiness is just as much a part of our salvation as is the new birth experience. Okay? Like I said, we tend to we want to stop at verse 38 and we say, you know, well, what's the plan of salvation? The plan of salvation is not just Acts 2.38, but it is Acts 2.38 plus holiness, plus maturing in God. Okay? So the answer, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, you know, Peter's given this direction. He's saying, you know, well, we have to save ourselves from this untoward generation. Well, how do we do that? How do we save ourselves from this untoward generation? And Peter actually has an answer in 1 Peter chapter 1. And just for the future, too, I forgot to say this. I'm going through a lot of scripture. I'm going to mention the chapter and verse. Um, so if you're following along, like, with your Bibles and stuff, I'm going to be kind of moving for the interest of time. But I'm mentioning it for, like, the recording. I know we're live. If you guys want to study this later on, you guys can go back there and rewatch it. Or you can also ask me for my notes. I'll give you my notes, too. It's not a problem, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. This is Peter, the same one who delivered the message on the day of Pentecost. He says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you as holy, God's holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. The thing we have to understand here is that Peter is saying that the new birth is necessary, but he's saying that we must hope to the end. Okay? Hope involves obedience to Christ. And if we truly believe that he is going to come back for us, we will be obedient to his calling on our lives. And we find that in verse 39 of Acts 2. It says, For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, it is many as the Lord our God shall call. So this call goes out to everybody. This goes out to the whole world. And those who believe will become obedient to that and rest in the hope that Jesus Christ is going to come back and know that it's going to be worth it in the end. All right, does this make sense? All right. Taking this kind of slow here. All right, so people who hope in Christ, as we just read in 1 Peter, do not fashion themselves after their former lusts. Now, lust here is not just talking about physical lust. It's not talking about sexual sins or, or alcohol, alcoholism or drugs or anything like that. Instead, let me read to you a portion of Scripture here in Jude. And I'd say chapter something, but it's only one chapter. So it's verse 5 through 11. And it says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this. Okay, so he's talking to believers, believers who have been born again, people who have repented, been baptized in Jesus' name, got the Holy Ghost. How that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. And the angels was kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. A lot of this we know from Old Testament scripture, okay? But now he's making a parallel here to his day and to our day. Verse 8. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defiled the flesh. In other words, current day people defiled the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. 
Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring an accusation against him, but simply said, the Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone into the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. I know that took a minute there to read those six verses, but we typically tend to think of an untoward generation as being people who give themselves over to bars, drunkenness, things like that. But an untoward generation is also the generation we're seeing today. Look on social media and look at the attacks on dignitaries, our world leaders. We have to understand that the people of God do not fear our world leaders. We're supposed to pray for them, not attack them. We understand that they're ordained of God to do a particular function, and that rulers, according to Romans 13, are not a terror to good works. They are not a terror to us, but they are a terror to the ungodly. Okay? And this is what God's called us out of, right? I mean, think about this for a second. Our hope that we have in Christ is that one day we're going to be like kings and priests with him. Okay? This cycle that we have, and I'm just going to talk about American politics here for a minute because it's really kind of, it's 2020, it's the year that everybody hates. But it's 2020 and this, this constant political infighting, this divisiveness in the country, this is nothing new. And I promise you this, in 2024, because it's an untoward generation, they're going to do the exact same divisiveness again. We're not to be going out and doing these sorts of things. Okay? Remember, he says, save yourself from this untoward generation. The Acts 2.38 message is not enough. It's the new birth. That's what it is. It's a birth. We're babes in Christ. We have to go on into maturity in him and separate ourselves from this world and let the light in us and the holiness that God's developing in us be a light to the world and say, hey, my hope doesn't have to be in just the next presidential election. I have a hope to come. Make sense so far? All right, so Hebrews 12, 14. Actually, let me back up a second here. Let me talk about this for a second. In light of the politicking and things that are going on, we're looking at a world that's literally destroying itself with hatred. That, that's what they're doing. It doesn't matter even if the other side really is right. The other, I was just say Republican or Democrat. It doesn't matter if Republican or Democrat is right. The other side is so blinded and so filled with hate that it doesn't matter. They're, they're, they're just going to rail and attack, and they're going to do everything they can to tear that person down. That's not of God. That's unholiness. That's sin. Okay? But there's also that sort of same spirit that we can have in the church when we attack our brothers or our sisters. See, Cain killed Abel, right? It says they're going after the way of Cain. The untoward generation goes after the way of Cain. Well, Cain killed his brother Abel. When I attack my brother and I show hatred toward one of them, I've committed murder. It's the exact same thing. And it is that sort of thing that God is trying to work out of his people. Not just his people in terms of the church, but also the world. He's calling all to repentance. God actually cares about you and I. This notion, particularly from the secular society, that God doesn't care is just complete nonsense. God set these rules in place because he doesn't want to see you and I destroyed. Okay? 
So Hebrews 12, 14. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So we see here that holiness is a necessity to actually seeing God. It's not just Acts 2.38. And I know I'm sounding like sacrilegious here to a bunch of Pentecostals. Believe me, Acts 2.38, I live, breathe, I'll die for that message, 100%. But there comes a point where we as believers mature past that. And then we have to follow peace with all men, Republican and Democrat. The boss at work, the supervisor that you sometimes can't stand at work. Okay. This is all holiness issues. This is all matters of the heart. Okay. So the thing is, though, is with holiness, without holiness, we can't see the Lord. But that means we've got a problem. And it's really highlighted here in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And this is Isaiah. He sees in the vision angels or seraphim. Okay. It says, one cried to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door was moved at the voice of him that cried. The house was filled with smoke. Then said I, this is Isaiah's response to seeing the holy God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He said, woe is me. I am undone. Why? Isaiah said, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in a generation or a people of unclean lips. We in and of ourselves have nothing good in us. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. And this world has no concept whatsoever of the holiness of God. But that's what God's telling us to be. He set the standard. He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. So how can we meet this standard that it seems like we just have no shot at meeting? Even Isaiah, I mean, he's a prophet of God, and he's saying, I, I'm done. I've seen God. I've seen his holiness. Who am I that I would ever have communion with him? I'm kind of reading into it a little bit, but that's kind of the feeling he's going here. The next thing I want to highlight here, too, as, a prob- as sort of like an issue that we have to highlight this, is that Isaiah saw how holy God is and realized how unholy he was. He realized how holy God was and how unholy Israel was. But Moses, when he was around, he was commanded by God to build a tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, we can go through the tabernacle plan and all the pieces of furniture, but I want to focus on this one article that's the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies. It was a constant reminder, even though it was in Israel, no one could enter into the Holy of Holies except for one guy once a year to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. To go into literally the Holiest of Holies where the mercy seat dwelt. I mean, that's where mercy is, and nobody was even allowed to go in. And if that high priest made a single mistake along the way with all the rituals and things that he had to do, and he walked into the Holiest of Holies, God would kill him on the spot because sin can't dwell in holiness. So the tabernacle plan and the tabernacle itself was a constant reminder in the nation of Israel of how holy God is, just like Isaiah saw, and it was a constant reminder of how unholy and how unworthy they are. So how do we solve this problem? How do we solve this issue of, I've got no shot, like Isaiah said, he says, I'm undone. 
Well, the thing is, is God is in his holiness and in his righteousness has a plan. Okay. Genesis 22, verse 6 through 8. I'm using Old Testament here, type here, and then I'm going to follow it up with a New Testament scripture. I'll just kind of sum it up here. Really, it's just verse 8. It's, it's Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's about to go sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. And Isaac is like, where's the sacrifice? And we know the story that Abraham's response was, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And he goes up to the mountain and he goes to strike Isaac. And, and God stops him and says, I know you, I know you love me now. I, I know you love me. But the thing I want to highlight here is that Abraham said, said to my he said to Isaac when he asked him he was like where's the offering he says God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering John chapter 8 gospel of John chapter 8 verse 56 this is Jesus dealing with like religious elites who think you know they claim Abraham but they don't actually walk in faith or anything like that he's basically scolding them and he says to them your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad that there was something that happened in Abraham's life. Right here in verse 8, where it says, God will provide himself a lamb. It's that he knew, he walked by faith that God was going to provide a lamb, but he also saw about 2,000 years into the future, the lamb, the sacrifice, the one, the only one who could actually pay for the debt that we have, the only one that can actually tear down that wall of separation in the tabernacle, the only one that can actually find a way to restore us back into the fold of God, into his holiness. Okay. Without the Holy Ghost, without what Jesus Christ had done, we'd have no shot. There's no way for us to ever attain the holiness that God would want us to have, which is a requirement for seeing him. Okay. But here's the thing, and this, this, there's a song that, you know, our senior first lady sings. She sings around every Christmas time. She says, you know, isn't it amazing the way he came? Isn't it amazing the way he came? God in his holiness in the holy of holies, so to speak. So we'll just kind of stick with the tabernacle here. It says, I'm separated from my people. My people can't get to me. I want to commune with my people. They can't get to me, so I'm going to go to them. And I'm going to show them how to live a holy life. So that way they can be with me. God showed the way to holiness in his life and his death and his resurrection. And we say, well, how did he do that? Well, one of the first things he did is he said he forgave his enemies. Now, you say, who are his enemies? This is where you take your finger like this, and you point it right at yourself. We were once enemies of God. And I want to highlight this even more about God forgiving his enemies. What he went through at Calvary, the barbaric treatment that he went through, I mean, he was whipped with a cat of nine tails. He had spikes driven through his hand and his feet. He was mocked. He was spit on by the very people that he had once healed and delivered. He was knifed in the back. He did all these things. And he, he's holy. He didn't do anything wrong. So he's being wronged this entire time. He's going through it. And in one sentence, in one sentence, he highlights how holy he is and how unholy we are. And in that one sentence, he also robs hell of all its power and all its, all its dominion in one single sentence. As they're driving the stakes into his hand, into his feet, as he's being butchered and murdered for doing nothing wrong, taking our place, right? As we know theologically, he took our place. 
through all of that, his response was, Father, forgive them. He said, Father, I get convicted when I see that, when I hear that, because I look at this and I'm like, when somebody wrongs me, is that my first response? I mean, God was, he's so holy, he's so perfect. He goes through, and here's the thing too, here's the kicker. Nobody asked him to forgive him at that time. The Roman centurion that was pounding him into the tree didn't say, forgive me, while he was pounding him into the tree. The people passing by, mocking him and denigrating him, didn't ask. They didn't say, I'm sorry. He didn't wait for the apology. That's in his heart. That's who he is. It's his essence. It's, it's everything he is in his holiness. He says, I, Father, forgive them. And immediately, I feel conviction in my heart. And I'm like, Lord, I find myself nothing like you at times how much work I need done in my own life. And I'm saying this, I'm saying this because I'm up here teaching and Scripture says, you know, you, you, when you teach, you know, you have a stricter judgment, you have to be held to the highest standard. But I'm up here feeling so unworthy to be up here talking about this because everything God did, I, I look at this and I'm like, Lord, make me like you. I find things in my life, God, that I'm like, Lord, I got the, whole, I got the Acts 238 message in me. I have it in me, and I'm saying, Lord, I'm still not enough like you. I'm still not enough like you. Help me to be forgiving. Help me to be patient and kind and loving and all these things that we talked about. Lord, make me more like you. Make me holy like you're holy. You know what else he did? He served his disciples. He served his subordinates. He literally washed their feet, and he didn't second, he didn't like, you know, there are times where we do foot washing and communion. We do it every year here. And there's kind of like a, you know, I'll just kind of wash so-and-so his feet because I'm comfortable with them. I'm just being real. All right? Just got to tell the truth up here. That's all I can do. Jesus didn't do that. Scripture says that before he even washed their feet there at the Last Supper, that the Holy Ghost revealed to him that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Judas was going to knife him in the back, and yet he still washed his feet. We willing to do the same thing? See, this is teaching. This is one of those things where it's kind of like, here's the point. It's kind of like Jesus when he, when he teaches. He just, yeah, he's teaching now. This is what I'm trying to say. When he teaches, it gets right to the heart of the matter. It's, are you like me or are you not like me? Do you love me or do you not love me? Are you willing to serve me or are you not going to serve me? He submitted to authority. I don't know why politics keeps coming up, but it is what it is. He submitted to authority. Pontius Pilate's like, I have the power to let you go. He said, you have no power that God didn't already give you. So the God of all heaven literally submitted to a pagan sinner because of the authority he had. Not just to submit to him, but also to Save him. I believe that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, the pilot was on his mind. Jesus prayed. You know, his flesh didn't want to be crucified. It didn't want to submit to the call. 
He didn't want to do that. But he prayed it and, and fasted. And if I could say this lightly, beat it into submission. Because the call was greater because he loved us so much that he would deny his own pleasures for the sake of saving you and I. How often are we willing to give up our own pleasures to see our brothers and sisters lifted up? He himself showed us how it's done. He left the holies of holies. We talk about you know, some of the articles of furniture that were in the, in the tabernacle. He left the holies of holies, but you know, there was the brazen labor, baptism. He was baptizing to John's baptism to fulfill our righteousness. He did everything to show us how we can attain the holiness that is necessary in order to make it to be with him. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. It says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And we're, there's another scripture we're going to read later on, but holiness is inward and outward. Okay. But the thing I wanted to talk about here is verse 20. The very beginning part says, for you are bought with a price. And I'm saying this knowing that I'm guilty of what, what I'm about to go against here. Something that's working on me about. This idea, I didn't even say this idea, this thing that I think most of us have kind of given into, but there are those of us who really struggle with this. And I'm talking about depression. I'm talking about this notion of telling yourself that you're nothing, no good, loser, failure. Every single one of those things are unholy. It's unholy. Okay? The idea here is that we are bought with a price. God, let me, to the people who struggle with depression or feel like they're not worth it or aren't good enough, God literally spoke and framed the world. He put everything into existence. He spoke it into existence. He created everything. It was easy for him to do. He said, let there be light, boom, there's light. He said, separate the night and the day. He did that. That was easy. But there's one thing he actually purchased that cost him something, and that was the church. That was you and me. God actually put everything he had into purchasing our salvation. He owns everything. It says the earth is his, the fullness thereof. He spoke everything into existence. But yet his holiness and his character desired you and I. And this notion that after we get the Holy Ghost and we get baptized in Jesus' name and we experience the new birth and we experience the love of Christ, to then fall back again into this, this pit of depression, this pit of just saying, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a failure. That's not of God. God put it on the line for you. He left the stars, the moon, the galaxies he was making, the black holes, all the stuff that we look at, we're just like, wow, God, that's awesome. Yeah, that's nothing compared to you. That's nothing compared to you. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, going through chapter 7, verse 1. It says, wherefore, come out from among them, Save yourself from an untoward generation. Okay. Come out from among them and be ye separate. He's talking. 
He's quoting scripture to believers, apostolic believers. Saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you should be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So this before I'll say it again, holiness is inward and outward, but that's not really the point what I'm talking about here. I want to go back to verse 1 where it says, Heaven, therefore, these promises. What promises? That we'll be received and that we'll be sons and daughters with him. But in order to claim the promise, we have to fulfill the conditions of the promise. And that is we have to go on and perfect holiness. That it's an ongoing process. That it never ends. The new birth is just the beginning. But the end of a thing is greater than the beginning of a thing. We have a hope to look forward to that the world doesn't have. 1 Corinthians 13.10. I'm, I'm almost done here. 1 Corinthians 13.10. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Verse 12, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. We have an obligation after Acts 2.38, after that takes place in our lives, to grow up in God. We can get into a place, into this rut, where we grow old in God, but we never actually grow up in God. That's somewhere along the lines that we, we just kind of stagnated. And the, the perfecting holiness, the Holy Ghost that's trying to perfect us, is just kind of stops because we've kind of seared our conscience in some areas or, or we've become lax or, I'll just say lazy, for lack of a better word, in some areas. That drive wasn't there. It just died off. We can allow ourselves to fall into this false sense of security where, you know, if we come to church and, you know, we pay our 10% tithe, into God's 401k plan, expecting a retirement. And that's never been God's design. God has always taken things and expected them to grow and to mature and to develop. And there are promises God's wanting to give each and every one of us, but God's just waiting for us to grow up so we can learn how to handle those promises. There are gifts God's wanting to pour out, but he's like, they stop growing. I, I can't trust him with it yet. It's like me giving my, wanting to give my kid a, a car to go drive. He's seven. God's wanting to give us a car, but we're stuck with the seven-year-old mentality sometimes in God in some areas of our lives. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to tell the truth, all right? So we got to, this perfecting holiness thing is something we have to work on in the daily lives. It doesn't end. If we sit there and we, we stop for one second and we look at ourselves and compare ourselves to somebody in the world, I mean, are we the people that we're okay with putting those signs out that says, my governor's an idiot, pure Michigan? That's a violation of scripture there. I mean, as much as sometimes we can get riled up in politics and think we're right and all that stuff, understand that God's the one that's given her the authority. I mean, we sometimes kind of forget this. I mean, this is all basic stuff to a lot of us, right? This is stuff that we've known and heard, but I just want to put it into your remembrance. Kind of like Jude said, he said, look, I'll put it into remembrance. Hey, you know, Israel's brought out of Egypt, but they lost their way because of unbelief. 
And for the new people here, I know we have a lot of new converts lately. I'm not seeing a lot here, but if you're online or anything like that. Now, God saved us in Acts 2 or 3. I've said it over and over again. But it was to begin this process called sanctification. It's the more we walk with him, the more separated we get from the world and the more like him we become. Because that's the ultimate goal is to be holy like he is holy. Right? All right, musicians come too. Come up here. I'm on my last verse. First John chapter 3. Because I know this isn't preaching. This is more of like Bible study format here. But what's the end game for us when we go through the Acts 2, 3-day message? I've hinted at it a couple times. We already know it. It's, it's salvation with him, right? It's actually more than that. First John chapter 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, read it with me here, we shall be like him. He will finish the work, and we will be holy like he is holy. You know, the, the resurrection, too, I mean, the, the second coming. You know, it says we're supposed to be holy in, in body and spirit, right? We read that. But when he comes back, this is going to really happen. This is going to really happen. You're going to get a glorified body. Your flesh will be no more. You will be holy in body. And your soul will obtain salvation. You will be holy in spirit. Verse 3, if you guys want to stand. It says, every man that has this hope, what hope? That Jesus Christ is going to come back and finish the work. Every man that has this hope, purifies himself even as he is pure. Back at the, t the tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle that was in the wilderness in Israel, the very front there was an altar sacrifice. And God lit it. He's the one who lit it and he, he charged the people and says, don't ever let this fire go out. God fills us with his spirit. He tears down the veil to the holiest of holies. Now we get a chance to go the other way, through the altar that he was able to build, going into that holy of holies to be with him. He had to come down to get us, but now we have to go back the way that he showed us. There is no shortcut. To stagnate in God is to die. And the best thing I can think of to say this is that our bodies, our bodies always change. They, they adapt. They, they, the cells divide. Things die and things are made anew. But medically, death happens when that change stops. 
and it's the same in the spirit. If we ever get to a place in God where we're just content, that's when we're in danger of dying. That's when we're in danger of losing everything. The plan of salvation is this. It is repent. It is be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of your sins. It is the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But it's also saving yourself from an untoward generation. It's always pressing into the high and upward call of Jesus Christ. It's being obedient to the hope that we have in him. So if there's anybody here that sort of feels like I do, when we look at Jesus and say, I'm not like you enough, but I want to be. He says, I want to be like you, Lord. I don't want to stop with where I'm at. I want to go on into maturity. Do you want into perfection? I want to perfect holiness in you. I invite you to come, but I'll be the first one to go too because I'm telling you right now, I need God in my life. There are areas in my life that I've stagnated. And I can't have that because stagnation is death. I invite you to come. Thank you.